Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I'm both an Israeli and an American. Born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the first Lebanon war in the 1980s, and for years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel, and of course this podcast, Inside Israel. The Israeli Defense Forces fighting is both above ground and now very much underground. The underground fighting is mainly in the southern Gaza Strip, where it is estimated the Hamas leaders are hiding and where most of the hostages are being held. Reports from the Israeli Defense Forces intelligence speak of roughly 3,000 terrorists killed and roughly 400 surrendered in the last few weeks in the southern Gaza, mainly in the Khan Yunus area. In one of the underground operations, the Israeli Defense Forces soldiers located an official Hamas document written by a senior Hamas official detailing instructions for psychological warfare against, you guessed it, the Israeli public. In an earlier episode, I spoke about and interviewed Professor Rivka Tuval Mashiach regarding Hamas' use of psychological terror. It is fascinating to read in this document Hamas' strategy regarding Israeli society. It is equally fascinating, as an Israeli, to comprehend the degree in which Hamas doesn't really know Israeli society, or I should say, has an older concept of how Israeli society functions. We must understand that since October 8th, One day after the heinous attack, Hamas has had one main objective, and that is to remain in power, to survive. This is more important to them than releasing Hamas members from Israeli prisons. It is more important to them than the safety of their own civilian population. That one is obvious. And it is more important to them than the lives of their roughly 30,000 fighter-slash-terrorists, half of which are dead or unable to fight due to the severe injury in in this last war. Look, Hamas is very well aware that the Israeli Defense Forces will defeat them. There's really only one way they can remain in power, and that is to stop the war. But how will they achieve that? Here are seven options in which Hamas thinks they can stop the war. All these options are clearly stated in the document found by the IDF. So how does Hamas think they'll survive? So number one, Hamas hoped that the Israeli public would pressure the Israeli government to stop the war. They hope for a high death toll among the Israeli Defense Forces soldiers, causing a collective sort of depression to Israelis at large. And of course, Hamas hoped that Israelis yearning to bring the hostages home, and hence the demand to force the Israeli government to concede to Hamas. Number two, Hamas outlined as a strategy to make the Israeli public believe that the military pressure of the Israeli Defense Forces in Gaza isn't working in favor of the hostage release. On the news, you often hear or heard some Israelis, and I emphasize only some, saying, let's stop now. The military pressure isn't working. Third, Hamas hopes that massive death among Palestinian civilians will cause a worldwide uproar. For this purpose, Hamas inflates the death toll, includes in the count dead terrorists, and claims that at least 70% of the casualties are women and children. Hamas propaganda units supply constant film footage much of which is edited and often fake, and is released to the hungry-for-material world media of death and carnage. Fourth, 
Hamas aimed for worldwide pressure on the American administration that will eventually halt Israel. The United States administration is already pressured by Arab countries allied with the United States like Jordan, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and others. Also pressure on the American administration like the United Kingdom and other Western European nations, even pressure from China and Russia. Fifth, Hamas pushed vigorously for worldwide massive anti-Israel demonstrations creating pressure on the governments of the countries the demonstrators reside in to stop Israel. Six, Hamas drafted South Africa to submit a lawsuit against Israel. Hamas hoped the International Court of Justice in The Hague would order an injunction to stop the war immediately. And seven, Hamas's regional allies and co-ideologues intended and still intend to disrupt the world economy. The most clear attempt is that of the Yemenite Houthis blocking international shipping, causing delays in delivery and, of course, the rising of prices. Get this. Egypt is suffering the most. The amount of shipping via the Suez Canal, which Egypt charges taxes on, has lowered by much. In other words, less money for Egypt. And so the Egyptian asked the Yemenite Houthis to attack only Israeli shipping. Nice of them. Back to the Hamas document that outlines this strategy. It was found in an important strategic location in one of the tunnels, in an area that was visited by Hamas commander Yihya Sinwal. Although not said in so many words, it is more than likely Yihya Sinwal himself wrote the document. I cannot emphasize enough the strategic importance of this document. The document orders the continued distribution of photos and videos of Israeli hostages due to, and I quote from the document, the psychological pressure they create, obviously, in Israeli society. Hamas is well aware of the passionate discussion in the Israeli public regarding the hostages. So again, they're trying to leverage this in order to have the Israeli public pressure the Israeli government to stop the war in exchange for the return of the hostages safely to their homes. But most Israelis aren't behaving according to what Hamas expects. In a recent poll of the Israeli public regarding the hostage deal, taken a short while ago in mid-January of 2024, a poll conducted by the Israeli Democracy Institute, which is a well-regarded, respected institute, the following was concluded. The majority of Jewish Israelis interviewed, that's 60% of them, think that it is not right for Israel to agree to a deal for the release of the hostages in return for the release of all Palestinian prisoners and halting the war in Gaza. Among Israeli Arabs, the picture is reversed, and a large majority, 78.5%, support agreeing to such a deal. Mind you, if the question was just about an exchange, Palestinian prisoners, for the Israeli hostages, without putting a stop to the war, I guarantee most Jewish Israelis would agree to a deal. But almost all Jewish Israelis want to see Hamas gone. Also, the death toll among the Israeli Defense Forces soldier is painful. I personally know of three young men killed in Gaza. And yet, the overall death toll of the Israeli Defense Forces incursion into Gaza is not high. Actually, it's even much lower than expected. According to the same poll, Israelis give the Israeli Defense Forces a very high ranking. Among Israeli Jewish interviewees, 88% give a positive assessment of the performance of the IDF forces in the war until now. By contrast, only a minority of Israeli Arabs interviewed concur, about 43%. And so Hamas was wrong about the Israeli public. If anything, it is the public that is not willing to end the war until Hamas is brought down. Hamas was also wrong about the Palestinian civilian death toll making Israel stop. As far as the Palestinian civilian death toll, Hamas hoped that the world would rally against Israel. That's not really happening. 
Don't get me wrong. Plenty of people in media sources accuse Israel of Palestinian civilian deaths, but no one of real importance, including the International Court of Justice at The Hague, has called upon Israel to stop. People are understanding that Hamas lies. Remember back to the accusation that Israel killed hundreds in the compound of a Gaza hospital? And when the truth came out, it was Hamas or Islamic Jihad's rocket that killed a couple of dozen people? As a result, Hamas lost the already minimal credibility it had. Furthermore, the current investigation of the UN employees working for Hamas that perpetrated the attack on October 7th and that are currently fighting Israel as UN employees is again hurting Hamas's credibility even among sympathetic countries. A flood of countries have halted their funding for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Work Association. I'll come back to this in a bit. You get a laugh out of this one. My friend Abraham Silver sent me the following newspaper article. UNRWA spokesman Adnan Abu Hasna, in a press interview today, said the following. Israel knew who was working for us. Why didn't it warn beforehand that it didn't want a certain person? Why only after October 7th happened? Only after the war started did Israel remember the four or five terrorists. He actually blamed Israel for UNRWA having Hamas terrorists working for them. Incidentally, Israel's been talking about it for years. And incidentally, it's not three or four terrorists. It's at least 10% of all UNRWA workers. I'll get back to this. And so now I come to Hamas's hope the U.S. administration would allow Israel only a limited incursion for a limited time into Gaza. And again, Hamas was wrong. They miscalculated the American overall strategy. According to Reserve Brigadier General Yossi Kupelwasser, former head of the Israeli Defense Forces Research Division, Hamas and its allies, such as the Iranians, Qatar, and Turkey, together with China and Russia, are the rivals of the United States in the struggle for power over world order. The world order in which the anti-U.S. groups and countries are striving to prevent an Israeli victory. They would like to keep Hamas rule intact. Hamas, with the help of its allies, primarily Qatar, Iran, the Houthis in Yemen, the Shiite militias in Iraq and Hezbollah in Lebanon, are doing their part in fighting Israel. But they're also harassing U.S. troops and personnel. They're blocking waterways, etc. Their intention is to demonstrate to the United States the danger of an unwanted regional war. The message to the U.S. is, if you don't stop Israel, you may have an unwanted regional war on your hands. The U.S. reaction is almost opposite to Hamas and its allies' expectations. U.S. warships arrived at the scene. Biden said his famous, don't. And other than pressuring Israel to allow much humanitarian aid into Gaza, the U.S. administration fully understands that Israel is not only fighting on behalf of itself, but rather for all democracies against a radical, fundamentalist, dogmatic ideology that cherishes death in the name of their interpretation of what God thinks. In this sense, the U.S. has given Israel full clout to finish off Hamas. And I say this perhaps in contrast to what much of the media reports. As for the worldwide massive anti-Israel demonstrations, they're actually working for a bit, but only for a short while. They worked as long as it was about Israel and the Palestinian underdog. But quickly, it turned to slogans like from the river to the sea and to the Jews controlling the world, pure anti-Semitism. And then they started to burn flags of their own home countries. As the demonstrations continued, polls in the respective countries actually showed growing support for Israel, unlike many times in the past. As an almost last effort, Hamas enlisted South Africa to claim on their behalf at the International Court of Justice. Hamas prayed that the International Court of Justice would announce a verdict with an injunction of stopping the war. We all know that didn't happen. Not that the International Court of Justice commended Israel, 
but it didn't do anything to hamper the Israeli war effort. The International Court of Justice even declared that Hamas must release the hostages unconditionally. On all accounts, Hamas got it wrong. They got it wrong in the Israeli public being oversensitive to the hostages and the Israeli death toll. They got it wrong with the influence of dead Palestinians. They got it wrong with the United States on the worldwide massive anti-Israel demonstrations. They got it wrong in the reaction of the International Court of Justice and even their allies that are willing to go only so far in their support. In my humble opinion, what is left for us to see is if Hamas chooses a deal to ensure the survival of its leaders, say in the form of exile, and remainder of their fighters, terrorists that will be demilitarized, and give up on their desire to keep their political and military power. Israel will not allow Hamas to stay in military or political power in the Gaza Strip. I would now like to circle back and say a few words about UNRWA, an acronym for the United Nations Relief and Work Agency. They are responsible for the Palestinian refugees. But realize, there are two UN agencies that deal with worldwide refugees. The first is called UNHCR, or the United Nations High Commission for Refugee, known simply as the UN Refugee Agency. Look, there are roughly 110 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. This displaced population receives many forms of help from the UNHCR. This agency is actually functional most of all at rehabilitating refugees in various conflicts around the world. As a matter of fact, the agency received Nobel Peace Prizes in 1954 and in 1981 for their success in rehabilitating refugees. The UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, is present in 135 countries. They employ almost 17,000 workers and their budget is just over $10 billion, one quarter of which is funded by the United States. The second UN agency is strictly and only for the Palestinians. It is called UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Work Agency. Contrary to the UNHCR, UNRWA is unable to point to any significant success in the rehabilitation of Palestinian refugees. For comparison, UNRWA's operations show that as of 2019, the agency's 31,726 employees cared for approximately 5.5 million Palestinians, classified as refugees. Now get this, the UNHCR has a ratio that stands at 4,195 refugees per worker. The ratio at UNRWA stands at 173 refugees per worker. I'll say that again. In 2019, the UN Refugee Agency for all refugees in the world, other than the Palestinians, has a ratio of almost 4,200 refugees per one UN worker. UNRWA has a ratio of 173 Palestinian refugees for one UN worker. Quite a big difference. But the biggest difference is in the definition of a refugee. For close to 110 million people worldwide, it means that the generation forced to leave a place of conflict is a refugee, say the Ukrainian that fled to Poland or to Germany. But not for the Palestinians. They have a unique set of refugee status. Here's some context. In 1950, UNRWA Director General Howard Kennedy from Canada reported to the UN General Assembly that the agency, I quote, the agency decided that a refugee is a person in need who as a result of the war in Palestine lost his home and means of living. Okay, that makes sense. However, in 1995, UNRWA Commissioner General Lawrence Michael Moore from the United States created, and again I'm quoting, extension of eligibility subject to need to the third generations of refugees that is, to people whose children themselves were born after 1948, the year of the conflict. And then in 1982, the eligibility definition was extended 
to all descendants of the Palestinian refugees. This time for all generations to come. In perpetuity, it was the Arab countries and of course the Palestinians that pushed for perpetuity. This enabled the Arab countries to shed any responsibility, especially economically, from the refugees residing in their countries. Of course, it also allowed a continued conflict with the Jewish state. Once again, anyone that is thought to be a descendant of Palestinians, whether they are born in Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, Europe, or anywhere in the world, whether they are born to a poor family or a wealthy one, whether they are lawful citizens of another country, no matter, they are refugees with a right to claim what is today part of Israel. Just to grasp, the status of all other world refugees is terminated almost always with the first generation. The idea is to rehabilitate refugees in their countries of residence, not to increase the number of refugees. Unless, of course, you're Palestinian. In 1948, Palestinian refugees numbered roughly 700,000. As a side note, 700,000 was also the number of Jewish refugees fleeing the Arab countries they were born in. The Jewish refugees obtained refugee status only for those that fled the Arab countries, not for their children born in their new homeland or in any future generations. But the Palestinians, with their special perpetual status, swelled to a current number of about 5.5 million. Sounds crazy, but the UN did not even attempt to rehabilitate Palestinian refugees. Actually, they did exactly the opposite. And let's be blunt. The UN agreed with the enemies of Israel to preserve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In the 1950s and 1960s, the Palestinians lacked political leadership and institutions. So UNRWA assumed a role similar to that of a government in exile. UNRWA became a quasi-state, as a government without territory. They functioned within the Arab countries as a government within a government. And please remember that at the time, Gaza was in Egypt and the West Bank in Jordan. UNRWA happily took on the role usually assigned to national governments in the fields of education, health services, and social services. The host Arab governments were thrilled by the fact that the full responsibility for the refugees in their territory rests on the UN. This cancels any incentive to engage in a long and expensive process to resettle refugees and turn them into productive citizens who are integrated into the local society and contribute to it. In the case of Hamas in Gaza, UNRWA's responsibility for fulfilling basic government functions is extremely problematic, especially since it frees Hamas from responsibility for Palestinian civilians on the ground. This allows Hamas to use all of its money for their terror activities. If you have any doubt of the UN bias, UNRWA's bias, it is enough to hear statements by, made by official UNRWA spokespeople, which compare between Israeli attacks on Palestinian armed terrorists to Hamas' attack on Israeli civilians. These same UNRWA spokespeople officially support the Palestinian right of return into Israel proper. After the Six-Day War in 1967, after Israel had taken over Gaza and the West Bank, Israel initiated a major plan to rebuild the refugee camps in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip with the aim of moving refugees to permanent housing, improving the infrastructure and living conditions. These measures were vigorously protested by UNRWA, which called on Israel to abandon its plans to avoid any action that could lead to resettlement of Palestinian refugees. A few words about UNRWA's education for the Palestinians. The phenomena of anti-Israel and anti-Semitic education in UNRWA's run school is nothing new. During the 1960s and 70s, the study of Palestinian nationalism was a specific goal of the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. UNRWA's educational emphasis matched the PLO layer-by-layer -layer approach to the destruction of Israel. This approach was adopted by the PLO since its inception in 1964, 
and supposedly abandoned it in 1990 as a result of the Oslo agreements with Israel. I say supposedly because many in the PLO standard authority today, which replaced the PLO, will still speak of Israel's destruction. In any case, the UNRWA curriculum dedicated by the PLO included a commitment to the right of return and the creation of an infrastructure for support of the inalienable rights of the Palestinian people. The textbooks in UNRWA schools reflected anti-Israelism and anti-Semitism, anti-Westernism and opposition to peace. Let's jump now to 2018. A study of textbooks in UNRWA schools found that the word Zionism regularly appeals in the context of a colonialist movement which is intended to expel Palestinians from their lands with the support of Western imperialism, thus drawing a zero-sum game of an existential threat to the Palestinians. It was found that the textbooks present Jews mainly as occupiers without any rights, with no connection to the land and to the holy places. It basically said that the Jews had no right or legitimacy to be in this land, and the fact that they're here, the Jews, is temporary. Finally, the textbooks do not mention the various rounds of negotiation between Israel and the Palestinians. They also do not mention a word about the peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, as well as no word about Israel and Jordan peace treaty. So now we must ask, who was employed by UNRWA? Approximately 99% of UNRWA employees are Palestinians, and less than 1% are international workers, most of whom are American and European. Only 200 employees out of 31,000 are not Palestinian. That's actually less than 1%. And so now let's talk about UNRWA and terror. UNRWA employees aiding, abating, and carrying out terror activities is also not new. In the late 1980s, at the same time as the first Palestinian Intifada and subsequent violence that broke out in the refugee camps run by UNRWA, the Israeli authorities claimed that some UNRWA employees are members or supporters of terrorist organizations and that in the agency's facility, was used to carry out terrorist acts. Israel claimed that UNRWA vehicles are used for transporting terrorists and weapons and demanded to arrest suspects and search those vehicles. UNRWA reacted by claiming diplomatic immunity for its employees and opposed any inspection or investigation. In the Tzuk Eitan operation, which was in 2014, Hamas used three UNRWA schools in the Gaza Strip to hide rockets and launch them at residential areas in Israel. The UN recognized these facts in a letter that Secretary General Ban Ki-moon sent to the President of the Security Council. He stated his displeasure. He said, Palestinian militants are endangering the UNRWA schools by actually using them to hide weapons. For many years, there have been claims about UNRWA's turning a blind eye to terrorist activity in its compounds and by its people. According to a report in the Wall Street Journal, about 10% of approximately 12,000 UNRWA employees in the Gaza Strip are connected to terrorist organizations. We now know that at least 12 UNRWA employees were involved in the October 7th attack. Of the 12, at least 6 took part in the massacre, 2 of them kidnapped Israelis, 2 more were in the places where Israelis were murdered, and the rest took part in logistical preparation for the attack, including purchasing weapons. In the bigger picture, about 23% of the male UNRWA employees have ties to Hamas, and 49% of all the organization's employees have relatives with ties to the terrorist organization in the Gaza Strip and to Hamas in particular. This was little too much for the countries funding UNRWA, at least for the time being. The USA, Germany, Canada, Australia, Italy, Great Britain, Finland, and Romania announced a decision to stop funding UNRWA. These countries are the main funders of UNRWA, 
The numbers are as follows. United States donates about 344 million. Germany, 202 million. The European Union, 115 million. Sweden, 70 million. The UN, 35 million. Norway, 34 million. Japan, 30. France, 29. Get this. Saudi Arabia is only eighth in the funding and gives 27 million. And Switzerland, 25 million. The overall budget of 2023, depending on how you count, was roughly 1.63 billion, of which 311.4 million were directed to the Gaza Strip. Of that, 174 million was directed to food, 66.6 million to the Cash for Work program, and the remainder to health, shelters, and education. The freezing of the funding has thus far amounted to about 60% of UNRWA's total budget. Not just in Gaza, but a total budget of UNRWA. Even the anti-Israel government of Scotland announced the following. Scotland has no plans to provide further support to UNRWA at this stage. Even Scotland understood that UNRWA is the problem. It is clear to all, most of all the countries that froze their funding, that UNRWA's activity for the Palestinian refugees is at best destructive. So, what is the alternative? And I'll say this shortly, there are four possible models. One, a major overhaul of UNRWA. In other words, reform UNRWA and oversee it. Not very likely this is a possibility. Two, incorporate UNRWA into the larger, functional UN Relief Agency, the UNHCR. Three, channel UNRWA's funds to the host countries. This won't solve the problem altogether. Plenty of host governments are anti-West and anti-Israel, say Syria. But plenty are willing to accommodate a different stance on the West and on Israel. Basically, those are the pragmatic Arab countries. In the West Bank and Gaza, a renewed authority can perhaps assume the same responsibilities. And four, create integration of the first three options. Look, if the world nations do not want their financial support to fund radical murderous ideologies, like in the case of Hamas, they must do away with their past chosen blindness. And honestly, they must do away with their hypocrisy. These nations should condition any future funds on either reforming UNRWA in a major way, turning UNRWA activities to the UNHCR, and or channel their funds to host countries. Do I see that happening anytime soon? Not really. But as always, I am optimistic. Thank you for listening. Please share this and other episodes. This episode and all others can be listened to on all podcast media sources such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast needs and would love your support. If willing, please log into InsideIsrael.fm and click on the Support Us button. 